Welcome to Lose Yourself with Dr. Mike Cunningham, Bible teacher in Vineyard, Utah. When we lose ourselves in worldly distractions, we lose our value, our purpose, and our passion in exchange for temporal experiences. But Jesus says that whoever would lose their life for his sake will find it. Let's learn what it means to lose yourself with Dr. Mike. Welcome to Lose Yourself. I'm Dr. Mike Cunningham, and I'm so glad you could join me for today's program. I had the opportunity to recently interview Dr. Richard Howe of Southern Evangelical Seminary to talk about apologetics. What is apologetics, you may ask? It is simply giving an account and a defense of the Christian faith. There's so much going on in our culture. There's so much going on in our world, and things change so rapidly. And he has been a tremendous resource to me and a resource to many. And you're going to get to hear my interview with him and the need for apologetics and philosophy in the defense of the Christian faith. We now pick up in part two of our three-part conversation. I've shared about my journey. I started in youth ministry in analog, and I was there for 25 years. And the first half of it, there was no internet, there was no texting, there were no cell phones, no social media. And somewhere about halfway through, the kids were just killing me with these really hard questions. And I'm like, where are you getting this stuff? And they were Googling and looking around, and I really remember having a moment where I had to say, am I going to have to quit, or am I going to get equipped? Because no one's impressed with my master's degree anymore. I think I earned that on a typewriter or something. I mean, you just have to be able to continue to move forward for some people, and they're afraid to dive in because they're afraid of what they're going to learn or see because they've been told is so much is flawed. And every time I lean in, God was good, and nothing else strengthened my faith more than trusting in Him and learning. And it seems like you had a similar experience with what you went through. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I can remember when I, before I even went off to college as just a young Christian at 16, 17, there would be things that I would have been afraid to look too closely at, especially the cults and some of the world religions. And so I can, I can identify with that emotional kind of visceral reaction to challenges to one's faith. And I would never uh, advocate imposing on too young a Christian uh, challenges to their faith any more than I would want to take a, a newborn and just throw him out into the world and say, here, just fend for yourself for your meals and stuff. You go, no, I mean, it has to be nurtured to a certain minimal threshold of viability and strength before the, an infant can begin to take in food that it has to chew, and then it can walk, and these kind of things. And so there's a lesson to be learned spiritually. But uh, I do think that as we grow in Christ, then it's incumbent upon us to to more or less acquaint ourselves with these challenges for two reasons. One, for our own spiritual health, that we can stay firm to what we know to be the truth. But second, that we can be used of God to help others do that. And uh, that, that latter is what meant so much to me through those formative years of my Christian faith where there were people that God brought into my life through their ministry that, that really, really set me back, my feet down on solid ground. And then I just took it from there and began to explore more and more and more to try to master this material. It was a survival mechanism for me originally, but then it became a quest because I was just strengthened. Uh, you know, it's funny. Norm Geiser was given a lecture on these real intricate, deep metaphysical things about the nature of God, and he finally said, uh, what do you do when you come face to face with this, this kind of metaphysical entity? He said, you take off your shoes, 
because the ground on which you stand is holy ground. And and I and I've, I've experienced that more than once where in intense study and some of my philosophy, all of a sudden before I knew it, I was in the middle of a worship service because you were being right. confronted with the majesty of God's being and just how magnanimous he is as a transcendent, infinite creator who who loves us. I mean, it's it's just a it, it, it so apologetics and these kind of things are always feeding that that passion of of uh, our relationship with God. I think it can absolutely do that. Absolutely. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And there's times when we explore those things, and it just brings extra clarity and extra meaning for what we're reading and what we're learning through our spiritual disciplines. So that's incredibly powerful, and thank you for that. Now, that leads us to our next question. So anyone who's entered a seminary program, there's some certain things that you kind of see from program to program that are pretty standard. And I remember being called to ministry, and I got excited. I'm going to go learn the Bible at seminary. And somewhere on my degree program is this weird-sounding class called Philosophy of Religion. And it just sounds scary because I didn't know anything about that. So what on earth is Philosophy of Religion? Well, you know, that, that, it is my lane in some respects in in. in you know, you can, there's, you can make a lot of combining forms with the word philosophy. Uh, you can have philosophy of law, there's philosophy of biology, there's philosophy of history. And in every one of those instances, it's an attempt to bring the tools and methods and protocols and, and such of the discipline of philosophy, whatever that is, to a particular aspect of reality, whether it's law, biology, physics, uh, history, or in this case, religion. So typically, a philosophy of religion discipline would cover thing, everything from the existence of God, the nature of God, to the nature of religious experience. And, and, and is religious experience, can it give us truth and these kind of things? So it's a, it's, a, it's a bona fide academic discipline, even if you don't find it as often as you may find some of the other philosophies of in, uh, in uh, a typical Anglo-American philosophy department in a, in a college university. So the things that I've fallen into in the past years, just by way of interest and also by way of uh, challenge that I've tried to meet some challenges that people have, have uh, thrown out against the classical view, as we call it, this, this sort of traditional view of God, is not just merely the existence of God, which has been a hot item for decades in American apologetics, is dealing with with people like William Lane Craig, for example, who's really brought to the forefront the cogency of a number of arguments for God's existence. I think it's ignited a fire. He's been a hero of mine since I was in graduate school in philosophy at Ole Miss back in the 80s. Um, so, uh, but in addition to God's existence, I've really been keen on looking more and more at issues related to God's attributes. And again, I use the expression classical theism. Sometimes these terms get introduced into the conversation and they take on a life of their own to the consternation of some and to the, to the joy of others. And you usually can't do anything about it. Once they get kind of latched in there, you might as well throw around the term so people know what you're talking about, even if people have take exception to it. So, you know, classical theism is this idea that these traditional, if you will, attributes of God that he's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving and immutable and impassable and is simple and these kind of things, 
whether those are really true or not. And, and I do a presentation, actually, Mike, I don't know if we've talked about this before, titled God Fading Away. Mm. And there what I try to document is <clears throat> a chorus of voices from the church fathers uh, up until the 20, and even into the 21st century, uh, celebrating these, these, these attributes of God, this classical theistic view of God. But you start to see, especially in Protestantism, sometime around the 17th into the 18th century, that some of these attributes then begin to drop off uh, one at a time. And that's what my facetious title, God Fading Away, is. So that today you have segments of the evangelical community in America who believe that God does not and cannot know the future actions of free creatures. So they will say that God cannot know what you and I are going to have for lunch uh, tomorrow. Now, he can make us have something for lunch. He's got that power to do that. But if he leaves it up to our free will, the argument goes, then he can't possibly know what we're going to freely do. And that is actually uh, a viable, by the academic standards, segment of contemporary evangelical American Christianity. I think to the, uh, to the worry of a lot of us who hold this traditional, if you will, classical view of the nature of God, that these things are erosions uh, on it. And as self-serving as it is to say, I think a lot of times the problem and the solution are philosophical. And as C.S. Lewis said, philosophy exists in many cases to answer bad philosophy. And that can come from our pulpits if we're not careful. It's funny how you mentioned the view of God and how it's morphed in these decades and centuries. And I think that we've where we are now is we see a lot of anthropomorphism, which basically means we see God as the big guy in the sky. We give him attributes that are limiting and self-serving. There's a kind of nebulous spirituality that America has been embracing for the last 50 years or so, been around long enough to show that it falls short. And so I feel like in some cases, that's why we're seeing a departure from spirituality. It has been a slow fade. It began as giving up certain natures and aspects of God, and then it became the Bible, and then it became other things. And again, the slow fade continues to this day as People are now holding on to nothing. And so talk to us about how those attributes and how the philosophy helps us approach these things to actually defend the Bible. Yes. So, you know, uh, I use as an illustration to kind of kick the, the conversation off out of Isaiah 55. When Isaiah 55 talks about this celebratory period in the eschaton at the consummation of history. And it says, the trees will clap their hands. Now, as we read that, and we already know enough about Isaiah, the writer, and the translation from the Hebrew into the English, we already know enough about these things to know that Isaiah understood fully that trees don't literally have hands, all right? So we can read that as, as what, what, what one would call a metaphor, right? But the only reason we are able to know that it's a metaphor is because we had some means by which we were able to understand enough about the nature of a tree, so that when someone ascribes hands to it, they're speaking metaphorically. But what's interesting is you don't learn the nature of a tree from the Bible. So the Bible doesn't tell you that trees don't literally have hands, that it only figuratively has hands. It doesn't say that. So there's got to be some way of knowing back behind or antecedent to our reading the scriptures, our ability to know what a tree is so that we can understand Isaiah's statement as being a metaphor. Well, of course, that's easy to explain, you know, because you grow up 
and you see this this maple tree and that willow tree and this oak tree and over the course of time as a child your intellect is able to understand the concept tree and and gives it meaning so that if somebody said hey there's this tree in china you know exactly what they mean if you've never been to china even if it's a species of tree you've never seen or know anything about there would be some things you would know that are true about it because it's because it's a tree all right, right. so I think that principle there of our access to the reality of the tree enables us to judge when the scriptures are speaking figuratively or literally about a tree. I think that principle is the same when it comes to, or at least the same in important respects, when it comes to questions about, well, what is God like? But I think the key to it, Mike, is is given to us by Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul's making a bigger point than the one I'm going to make right here, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood through the things that are made. So the argument I would leverage that I've gotten from others going back centuries is that we are able to know truths about God by reasoning from his effects, creation, to him as the cause. Just like you can see some ash in a fireplace And even though you didn't see the fire, it may not even be warm anymore, you know that there was wood there, so you can reason from the ash to the wood that had to have been there that burned to create that ash. So by analogy, if you will, we can see the creation, and there are certain ways to reason from that to know what God must be like. Now, let me quickly add, I think in the best case scenario, what that looks like is like Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Or Psalm 97, the heavens show his righteousness. Or Romans 2, 14 and 15 talks about the works of the law written on the heart. We're out of time, but please join us next week for the conclusion of this conversation with Dr. Richard G. Howe. This has been Lose Yourself. Lose Yourself is a teaching ministry of Bible teacher, Dr. Mike Cunningham. For more information about Mike and his ministry, check out his blog at loseyourself.life. Until next time, make it your ambition to lose yourself to Christ. Lose Yourself is a production of Key Radio.